Hi, friend. My name is Amy Joy, and this is the Make Prayer Beautiful podcast. When Phil and I went to Amsterdam, we had briefly considered the very popular tourist destination of the Anne Frank House, and that was really going to be a no-go for me. I don't love being around large crowds of people, and the idea of being in a hiding spot with large crowds of people was, oh, that was putting me over the edge. So we had originally, I at least had originally hoped to go over to Harlem, which is about half an hour away by train and see the Corrie Ten Boom house, but it was sold out for the entire week that we were in the Netherlands by the time I went to place tickets. So be a word to the wise, place tickets a couple of weeks in advance, maybe even a month if you can. But in any case, the Lord worked it out. I think if we had tried to catch a train to Harlem, uh, I don't know that we would have made it because we completely slept in until the train would have, like until the start of the tour that I had my eye on or something. I mean, it was just, (laughs) the Lord covered it. The point being, we did not go to the Anne Frank house, but I actually had multiple relatives, extended relatives who were part of the Dutch resistance against the Nazis. And the story goes that um, we went there as an extended family in 1999 because my grandparents wanted to show the family where their childhood was. It was their 50th anniversary and their blowout celebration for the entire extended family was to go to the Netherlands and see their, their home places. And so to see the church where they got married, it just so precious. And in one of the houses, they said, oh, look, and here's the ditch across the street. And this is where grandma's brothers um, hid from the Nazis when they came to see about arresting them. And again, you're like, oh, that's like right across the street. The ditch was, I mean, when we were there, the ditch was not big at all. So the idea of like, and people were coming to kill you or at least arrest you right there. Uh, it's hard to even imagine. And so anyway, I I really couldn't imagine it. So I had read that the Dutch Resistance Museum was a, a really powerful um, little museum to go through. And so Phil and I walked over there and I was so excited. I mean, when I went up to get the ticket, the man said, good morning to me in Dutch. And I replied, good morning in English. And he said, oh, I thought you were Dutch. (laughs) And that made me so proud because I was like, well, half of me is, but I don't speak any Dutch. And so I was so excited to go into this museum and I turned the corner into the first hallway. (sighs) And they had Nazi flags hanging from the ceiling and they had... Uh, on the screen next to me, the video of the Nazi soldiers marching and the sounds of that occupation. And I I think I was just taken aback because I knew in my head that it was the Dutch Resistance Museum, right? Like, yeah, this is how we fight back against the Nazis. But I think it had not really sunk in that (laughs) you have to resist because there is something to resist against. I don't know if that makes sense, but it was kind of like, I was expecting the celebration of what they had done. Like, and then they helped Jews to flee the nation or they hid them or, you know, there's different ways of serving. But I think the reality at first is that this was occupied land that 
the Nazis came in and it enforced their will on an entire people. And even just to see, like, there's that flag hanging. And that's what would have been happening here in this country. And the museum was incredibly well done. It was uh, by chronological order. And so year by year, there would be maybe a five-minute overview that was on a continuous loop. Uh, so it kind of didn't matter when you started watching it because, <laughs> you know, it would just start over again as soon as it was done. And then there were different displays of objects. So kind of like giant shadow boxes that would highlight different people and what their role was. And it would talk about the number, you know, kind of like this is a representative of this many people who experienced this particular uh, situation. So when we were flying in, we uh, flew a route that went over uh, England. And then, of course, we had to cross. I don't know if it's quite called the English Channel by the time it widens out like that or if that's the North Sea. But anyway, whatever is the junction point between those, that body of water. And so one of the things I remember thinking like, oh, my goodness, this is such an enormous body of water. This is not like the nine mile section where people would swim across. You know, sometimes you hear about the people who swam the English Channel. Well, it turns out that there were people from the Netherlands who tried to take boats over to England in order to join the armed forces. And just the idea of that vast expanse of water and knowing that there were Nazi patrols and planes flying overhead, the courage of those people in that, like, that's just a very small section of what needed to happen. But then to read about the different decisions that basic normal people would have to make, like, oh, I'm the director of a theater department. Am I going to sign the document that says that we have no Jews in our company? And the director was like, I had to feed, I was responsible for all of these families. Of course I signed the paper because I needed to keep them alive. <laughs> I needed to support them. They were looking to me. And so that's one perspective. But then you have the student who is like, okay, am I going to sign this paper that says I'm not a Jew so that I can get the scholarship that I need in order to get an education? knowing that if a Jew can't sign it, the Jew is not going to be able to get the scholarship. So ethically, what's the right decision in this case? And and so then none of the people in the Netherlands at that stage knew about, of course, the Nazi death camps. That was, for many of them, that didn't really come out until after the war. And so there's reports of people reading the newspaper afterwards and just the devastation of like, wait, did that really happen? There really were camps where people were simply incinerated. And the, (laughs) and so, but without knowing that kind of great atrocity that's happening just a few hundred miles away, they're making decisions on much, on a much smaller scale. Like, how do we keep the Jews from being deported to the work camps is what they would have thought. How do we keep the families together? How do we keep the children alive? And you think about how devastating to send away a child for their safety or for families to be broken up. Oh, and then after the war, when the families have maybe fostered well and have built up attachment, then here comes the actual mother and is ready to take the child back. And then there's trauma the other way, you know, like, oh, these are real stories that people had to wrestle through. 
And so I, I just am asking Lord, it was, I think so powerful to read about these everyday people who had to make decisions and sometimes the small decisions, like, do I sign this piece of paper? Do I fill out this card? Do I show up for work or do I strike? These are basic decisions that really almost any one of us could face at some point. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom to know what the right options are. Lord, I think about how the Jews, not the Jews, but the the people in the Netherlands towards the end of the war, how the Germans would come and simply conscript the men. Like, oh, we're going to just cordon off this section of land and take all of the men that we can find in this area. And Lord, I think about how Diedrich Bonhoeffer said to his seminary students, if you're drafted, you have three options and none of them are good. You can either flee the country and become a refugee and you might get caught. But even if you're not, you're now a refugee. (laughs) Or you could join the Nazi party or like join the war machine and try to work against it from the inside. But that is also not a great option. Or you could simply say, no, I'm not doing it, in which case they'll shoot you on the spot. And so you need to ask the Lord, what is the right choice for me? And then move forward in peace about the decision that you've made, recognizing that none of them are good options. And so, Lord, I think about just the difficulty of that particular set of decisions for the men, the German men, the Christian German men at that time. And Lord, how on a smaller scale, that was fa- many of the Dutch people had to face that. And Lord, I mean, my own, my own uh, ancestors had to face that. And Lord, on some level, we have to face decisions as well about what is right and what's not. And so, Lord, I'm just asking that we would attune our ears to hear your voice. Thank you, Lord. We love you. Amen.